and welcome to episode 44 of the 1099 for the week of May 30th, 2016. I'm your host, as always, Josiah Renauden, and we have two guests for today's podcast. Uh, first, we have an editor of GameSpot and a reviewer for one of the two games we'll be talking about, Mike Mahardy. Mike, how are you doing today? Good. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've tried, I tried to get you on earlier with like a Dark Souls podcast, but it's extremely difficult to ever organize podcasts in general, especially with time zones, so... Yeah. I think this is a perfect match because I realized you were reviewing one of the games I want to talk about, so it works out. I actually reviewed both of them. So oh, it works. man. You, you, you reviewed on Two for also? I did, yeah. I gave it a 10. Oh, oh, we have a lot to talk about. Great. All right. So <laughs> yeah. uh, second, we also have a freelancer for Playboy and PC Gamer as well as the host of the Presence Podcast, and I will never get used to saying freelancer for Playboy, but... Uh, Joseph Noop. Joe, how are you doing today? Yeah, you know, I, I, I've yet to tell my grandma I've ever written for Playboy, so I'm sure I'll <laughs> always keep an element of that with me. Uh, she'll probably go to her grave without knowing what I've written for. <laughs> uh, yeah, dude, I'm doing great. I've had a very weird week uh, in, in terms of game journalism, but uh, a good week nonetheless. You know, I feel like there's no normal weeks. Like, I feel like every week has to be a little bit weird. There's always the weeks that are even weirder. The best weird weeks are the ones where, like, it, sure, it'll be stressful, but I'm still learning something that's just like... God, the weird, the world is weirder than I gave it credit for. <laughs> it usually starts on Twitter too, which is yep. just usually where things like, like, you've had a weird week. Here's my uh, week. I posted, uh, so <laughs> completely unrelated to video games. Uh, I was Bob Ross for Halloween. Uh, this is hey, unrelated. I was too. Well, see, okay. So there's a popular costume and I, <laughs> I tweeted. I was actually, I, I was Twitch plays Bob Ross. Okay. So All right. Hot variation. Yeah. I, I tweeted the picture of Bob Ross and me like back to back to the official Bob Ross account, official quote unquote. Nice. And it retweeted it last night, and my notifications have been blowing up so much that I've had to stay off Twitter because it's just like all these people talking about Bob Ross, and I'm like, I've destroyed my entire Twitter presence. <laughs> so to get away from that, we're going to be podcasting today because I played Uncharted 4 and really, really want to talk about it. Uh, I've also put quite a few hours into Overwatch, and since I help make games and don't write about them, I thought this was the best way to kind of get a few smart people and uh, someone who's reviewed both games uh, to kind of get in here talk about these games uh and i want to start with uncharted because shockingly i have strong feelings on it i i mean for me like just a quick background on my experience of the series like i think uncharted 2 is one of the best games of the last generation i uh put just so many hours into uh all three of the original games and way too much time into the multiplayer of uncharted 2 there was a time where i was like doing weird competitive uncharted 2 which was a dark middle chapter of my life um so first off and i'll start with you mike uh, did you go into uncharted 4 feeling like we needed a fourth Uncharted game because you look at the third game and it did a really good job to kind of tie this neat tidy bow on the series it was almost a literal walk off into the sunset uh so what were your expectations going in and here's my existential big question does Uncharted 4 justify you know reopening the book or justify its own existence of going back to that well and continuing a story that was otherwise kind of closed yeah so I guess my expectations of it were a, why I didn't think there needed to be an Uncharted 4, and also B, why I loved Uncharted 4 after I beat it. Because I feel as if his uh, character arc had been closed off, and uh, Nathan Drake, feel like we had seen everything we needed to see. Um, I love the series, I agree with you. I think 2 was the best one before. Uh, and I, you know, I went into it thinking maybe The Last of Us was a risk for them, so they needed Uncharted 4 to kind of ground them maybe uh, with something more marketable, and it must have been their plans for a long time from a development standpoint, but... I, I don't know, going into Uncharted 4, I, I've come out of it, you know, like I said, I gave it a 10 out of 10, and I think it completely not only observes the previous games in such a way that makes them, you know, different in hindsight, but it also kind of just becomes its own thing, and I think it's one of the best, in the, it's the best game in the series, and it's one of my favorite games in a long time. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Uncharted 2 kind of being 
the best of those original three. And I, I, I think that is probably true, but there's also this thing where you look at Uncharted 1 and it was a, a good game for the time, really hard to go back to, and Uncharted 2 was this big jump. And I think 3, even though it improved on little things, it wasn't that gameplay, visual, everything jump that you saw from 1 to 2. And I do think 3 to 4 does that. And that's what makes it even all the more impressive seeing, I mean, not just from uh, like a pure graphical hardware standpoint, but character development, the way these characters uh, kind of interact with each other is just at a level that not a lot of other games have reached. And it's it really is impossible to talk about Uncharted 4 without mentioning the visuals. Uh, I mean, just the ways the faces animate. Uh, I look back at, and just a quick thing, we're going to spoil this game. Like, we've all beaten this game here. Oh, good. So, I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah, so let me let me say this now, since we haven't yet. We're going to spoil this game if you really haven't played Uncharted 4 yet. Uh, d- don't listen to this part. You can listen to this part, and we'll tell you how it ends, and then you don't need to play it. That's what we're doing for you. So, Because uh, the reason I have the spoiler warning there is because what really stuck out to me is when they are, it's Elena and uh, Nathan around this table of all the, the dead pirates, and they had just been, not just been, but you could tell they'd been poisoned. There had been some sort of poison in their drink. And the way you can see Nathan's face light up when he's talking about all of these pirates and being in their presence, even if they are, you know, dead and they're just skeletons there. And in the background, you can kind of see Elena's face as she's realizing how much this means to him and how different he is compared to when he was at home trying to have this normal life. It it says so damn much without using that many words. And I think the writing here is superb, but it's how they use the visual fidelity that really grabbed me. So, Joe, how much do you think? that powerful, emotional, nonverbal cues, all these different cues impact the delivery of the story. Well, I, I'll just bounce off of one of the previous points, which is like, yeah, this game certainly makes me appreciate the rest of the series more uh, almost entirely on the strength of its writing. Uh, I, the, yeah, you talk about the small moments in this game the, with the visual cues, which obviously have received an upgrade, uh, jumping systems, and uh, actually one of my favorite moments, I think, uh, in the overall story was uh, immediately after Elena saves Nate from, uh, you know, falling off of that cliffside after uh, Sam seems to have betrayed him. I feel like a much more typical game or a, a much lesser game would uh, kind of resolve everything right then and there. Like they're going to have a big conversation and end with, you know, God, I love you. Uh. But I, they, they extended that and they actually, they actually made some of those really key integral conversations optional. Uh, it, the story obviously doesn't change, but you can have these small moments that kind of illustrate the frustrations that Elena and Nate have with each other, uh, or the shortcomings that Nate especially has, and how uh, Elena kind of views them. And you learn so much more about her now, you know, considerably older perspective. And uh, that was one of my favorite parts, just because I was like, yeah, no, that's that is exactly how. Uh, even if this is Hollywood, that that's exactly how I would kind of perceive a flawed, damaged relationship like that being slowly mended. And then, of course, you know, later on, they they actually do kind of have their their kiss and make up moment. But even then, uh, it's still not fully resolved, and uh, you don't learn exactly how it panned out until the epilogue, of course. Uh, I so many small moments in this, and it I think it's really a testament to the writing. Um, uh, other than that, like, yeah, the overall writing, I gotta say, is probably league stronger than three. I had a lot of problems with uh, Uncharted 3's writing. Not that I, I think uh, Amy Hennig is, you know, a, a godsend to the community, but I think that there were some pretty distinct flaws in that that kept it from being as impactful as two for me. The mending of that relationship between uh, Nathan and Elena is actually one of my favorite parts of this game uh, because it's 
they they take their time with it. It's not just yeah. like like you said, like a kiss and make up. And the, the entire thing about this story is, I never really knew how it was going to pan out. Which that's how you should do with good writing. It shouldn't be like, well, it's obviously this going to happen. But I was on this weird edge of my seat where I always thought someone was going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, where when um when Sam decides that he's like they're really close to the treasure and everyone's like, nah, fuck that, we're going back, we're going to the plane, we're done with this. We've already been through like nineteen different like harrowing almost death experiences in the last hour. So, like, we're, we're bailing on this. And when they start walking back to the plane, all that's going through my head is like, oh my god, Sam's gonna shoot Sully. Sully's gonna die. They won't be able to fly back. And then they're gonna take Nathan Drake hostage. They're gonna get the treasure together. Like, I had like 18 different theories as it was going on. And Games Radar ran a piece before this game came out where they had this speculation about, like, uh, Nathan and Sam are gonna get locked in prison. And then they're gonna come out older and you play them as, like, older characters. So that was stuck in my head, too. So oh, wow. So yeah. Much- yeah, so I was, I had fucked myself over well before this game started where I had all these theories. Uh, and I mean, it turns out like, you know, crazy stuff happens, but no one gets killed. It's not this like it, it ends in a very interesting way other than that. But uh, Mike, you had mentioned The Last of Us before, and I think it's really important to talk about that game and talk about Uncharted 4 because I think the main thing this game learned from The Last of Us is patience, um, where The Last of Us kind of took its time in certain moments. It it spent the time to uh, develop these characters, and it made you care about them more. Um, and I think Uncharted 4 does that way better than any Uncharted game in the past. You look at those, uh, the, the initial areas where you're seeing Nathan Drake in his, in his new life, his, his quieter life. Even that scene where you're like in that, I think it's an attic, and you're seeing all these different trinkets throughout, and you have this toy gun. Uh, and you're, you know, it's, all this great music is going on and you, you're introduced to Sam as a kid. There's, there's so much going on there that I really enjoyed that buildup. But and again, I'll look at you, Mike. It, did, do you feel the game started out too slowly? Cause I know a lot of people and it's hard to judge exactly the temperature of the community from your Twitter account, but I sometimes do that. Uh, you, I got a lot of people saying like, it's taking too long to get going. Did you at all feel that way? No, not at all. Um, I think they kind of needed to, actually, coming back for the fourth game after so much has happened. And they even, you know, like you said, they allude to the earlier games by all, you know, he's looking through the pieces of the Chintamani stone, the coin, the galleon that started the whole trilogy. And it's kind of looking to the past. And it's almost as if Naughty Dog is saying, you know, we're back and we need to kind of, you know, have reverence for the past. Sort of like, it reminded me of The Force Awakens, the way that we all look at the earlier trilogy just like the characters in the movie do. I think that was Naughty Dog's way of connecting us to the current Nathan Drake and the, you know, his suburban home in New Orleans now, his really calm life. Yeah. Um, and the game essentially is like a five-chapter prologue. I think it's a couple hours if you want to look at it like structurally. I think the actual first act is really slow, but I, I didn't have any problem with it. It was, I still kind of feel like Sam was shoehorned in to change things up, but I think they dealt with him in a way that justified him being there, for sure, because he was the one that actually pulled Nathan back in by telling him this story about um, Hector, like, you know, holding his life above his head and saying, you need to find the treasure for me or I'm going to kill you in, you know, three months or whatever it was. And he's the catalyst for the entire you know, adventure, but it's really about, you know, Nathan and his obsession with a- adventure and not, like, leading a normal life. And you had mentioned the scene with the pirates um, collapsed around the table, which is a really integral scene, and a bunch of people... In my office, we all kind of talked about it one day. We did a spoiler cast, and it's funny because this is a game where you can t- uh, read scenes differently depending on who you are. And I saw that scene, and I read it similarly as you did. Um, Elena realized how much it meant to Nathan yeah. to yeah. doing things like this. But I think it was also her re- realization that she likes it a lot, too. And I think that was her realization that they need to figure out a way to have this adventurous life, but 
a little more safely, which is Elena kind of orchestrates the closing scene. You know, she says, I got the permit for the Malaysia job. We're going to go do this. I bought the company. We're going to have an adventurous life, but we're not going to do it illegally. We're not going to endanger our lives. We're going to have a, a daughter who's going to end up being a brilliant archaeologist. We're going to bring her up and she's going to be doing the same thing. She's, she's all over National Geographic covers, time covers. Um, their archaeological dig company just blows up like in a good way. Um, I think the patience of the earlier chapters of the game kind of set up this entire arc that really pays off in the end and not only bookends the game itself, but the entire trilogy because I think it sets up a cool way to look at the first three games, you know, as these legends that Nathan and Elena are going to tell Cassie in the future and they start to right at the end of Uncharted 4. So I think that patience was necessary to build up this story arc. Yeah, and if three was the bow, this was the cherry. This was enough of like, it was maybe even more than they needed, but it worked out so well where you felt like that last scene in that epilogue it's not inherently emotional, but after you've played all four of these games, it somehow takes on this emotional tinge where you're I literally like, gasped. Yeah, because you're sitting there and you're just like, you're seeing these images of like their daughter looking at their past and it's, uh, there's still always that weird elephant in the room of like, do you know your dad killed like everyone? Like everyone. He's killed so many people. But no, it worked out really well. And I do like the point you brought up about Sam being shoehorned because to a certain extent he is where I think, like you said, he has to act as this catalyst too to bring his brother back in like you, you need something to really bring nathan like hey he has to get back into this even though it's kind of strange that this is the first time his brother has ever come up um it there's a little bit of a weirdness with that but i do think in the end the little bit of the shoehornness is worth it for the payoff and uh mike like you said you gave this game a 10 and i you know wrote it GameSpot uh as a freelance for about two years and i know how i know what a 10 means like i know how big of a deal that is for the site so kind of a quick aside here what does a 10 mean to you because you get all the all the comments are always you know no game is perfect or anything like that and a 10 doesn't really mean a game is perfect there's no perfect game but uh what about uncharted 4 as you're playing it um and as you're writing this and as you're reading over your words you're like this is a this is a 10 this is at this this moment in time at this stage of games this is you know about as good as you're going to get what about uncharted 4 made you feel that way yeah, it rests at this intersection of design and writing and dialogue and animation and, you know, visual fidelity that I don't think another game has done. Um, I think other games have come close, and I think, you know, other games that I really like are similar in that all those details coalesce to create this entire experience. Um, I really like that Uncharted 4 doesn't stop telling its story while you're playing. You know, there are these little animations when you're on the cliff, and then when you kind of sidle over to go across Sam, you grab onto his shoulders and then get to the other side of him instead of just kind of, you know, clipping through him. And he'll say something, he'll say something like, what are you doing? Get off me. And I remember just small things like that that kind of paint, uh, paint a picture of what is going on. And then, you know, when Nathan and Elena are, you're in that elevator sequence, you're trying to bring the Jeep up the cliff. And Elena keeps having these asides. And like Joseph said, you can talk to her, uh, kind of tangentially and then have these conversations that push along the story itself. But then you have the cutscenes, of course, which, Traditionally in games, that's where this main, the bulk of the story is told, but this game itself, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's amazing to see how the action that you're, you're, you're sifting through is paralleling, you know, not only what's happening in the cutscenes, but how Nathan starts to see parallels between, uh, Henry Avery and his pitfalls and himself. You know, he's seeing them become obsessed with the treasure and he literally sees all his former friends and colleagues dead at a table because of the obsession. That's when Nathan that, realizes he needs to change, you know? That's the, uh, that's the point I was going to make is because uh, we, we talk about 
the the modern uh, relationships we see in the game, like Elena, Nate, Sam, Sully, uh, and of course, like the villains too. But we talking about like the game taking its time, and is that a good or a bad thing? I I, I probably spent an entire hour uh, exploring the old lady's mansion because there was so, there's so much minutia in there that actually gives you the key details as to why Nate and Sam are so uh, messed up. Like they have this almost insatiable thirst for uh, treasure hunting and for adventure. And you come to learn that like, yeah, no, it was, it was their mom. It was, and their mom had a history with it prior to uh, them being born. And I, I, I wrote a brief blog post about just my general thoughts about the story and particularly the ending. And uh, thinking about how every character in the Uncharted series is sort of undone in a way by uh, it's like the uh, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, the, that Nazi hunger for power kind of destroyed them in the end. That's a lot of similar things happen to all these characters in the Uncharted series. But Nate and Elena did this amazing, great thing by keeping that away from their child long enough uh, until she was until she was old enough to understand and to hear the one could say harsher reality of their previous life. And I think that that says a lot about uh, one, the reverence that uh, Druckmann and Straley have for uh, Nate as a character, but just the, just the overall story, because I, I, I was almost left cold by uncharted three's ending where it's like, okay, we're, we're great. We're back together and we're walking off into the sunset. We make one, cool little quip and fade to black. And they kind of did that on the uh, pier as they were discussing like, oh, what's our future going to look like? But they they took that one important extra step in implying, strongly implying that uh, they've not only resolved some of their issues, they've grown from them. No, I, I think uh, they could have ended it at that pier with that like last little quip. And I was yeah. pretty bummed if they did. I think them having this epilogue showed maturity compared to what they did in three it showed it was it was also i mean you could if you want to make another uncharted game and figure out a way but this this in a really good way is like all right no no we're actually closing this book like boom this is how this ends uh and uh, mike you were talking a lot about a lot of the the blending of the different areas of this game where even when you're trying to get up a hill, there's a lot of like random dialogue that builds characters. Um, when you're, even when you're like driving, it's just funny how even when you're like in like, uh, the four by four and you're driving off a cliff, everyone's making comments and there's like funny stuff there too. It, there's no, it's very well put together. And I think in terms of characters, set pieces and visuals, nothing really holds a candle to Uncharted 4. Uh, but as more traversal and gameplay was layered atop this game, I, to a certain extent, I did feel myself almost pushing through all of the climbing around and the shooting uh, just for the hope for more story beats, for more uh, character moments to to get what... Because, I, I, again, I think that um, Uncharted 4's gameplay, it ranges from standard to good, but the quality of the surrounding elements makes the fact that the gameplay isn't as exceptional stand a little bit more because I think... I don't think the shooting and the climbing has gone that much farther than it has in Uncharted 2. And there are absolutely elements of it. There's a lot more um, kind of freedom to climb a different way than you would. It's, it's it's still linear, but not nearly as linear as the other games. But did either of you feel this way that maybe, although it all blends together well, certain elements like the story, like the characters, like the visuals, 
are just that much more exceptional than actually playing Uncharted? And I can start with you, Joe. Um, you mean just like kind of uh, building up the small moments during the gameplay, in a sense? Just that, just that the, the, the characters and the story and the visuals are like nothing else, but the shooting and the climbing is not as... It, it almost stands out to me because it's not, you know, the other stuff is so ex- exceptional that the actual gameplay can feel standard at times. Right, uh, and I mean, this is this is one of the better examples of what they learned from Last of Us, aside from uh, some of the narrative tricks and like the overall length of the narrative too. Uh, I it, it, at times I will admit it did kind of feel like okay, and now time for a fight, like in the uh, uh, the African plains, the second fight when you're trying to put down a bridge and. So like okay we're gonna figure out this mild puzzle and oh wait no we've got uh, and it's like it, it it paints itself as an arena so you can kind of guess these things and uh, I really didn't feel that the combat really hit its stride until um, uh, the the marketplace uh, where they the the marketplace and the ensuing truck chase that they teased in a trailer earlier uh, last exactly, year actually sorry to interrupt you really quickly I think no go for it that's when Uncharted Four is at its best when it's mixing this spectacle with the gameplay when it's yep. just pure get behind cover shoot dude i don't think it, it it's not bad I, and i would never say every, it's bad but it feels substandard compared to everything all the window dressing and everything around it every every beat in that marketplace chase and the ensuing truck chase is is filled with story and filled with little uh, developments of all these characters and like yeah it's it's all building off of what they had done previously in the story um so you feel obviously more invested in it, but uh, that to me was kind of the perfect blend. And then the, it, it continued to kind of hit that mark for me, um, aside from a few combat arena areas later in the game where uh, combat felt earned, like Drake was, you know, stranded and trying to work his th- way through the enemy line back to his brother, uh, trying to make his way through uh, the cave system, and 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 obviously the. Uh, the final portion where kind of everyone's just kind of betraying each other. Uh, So obviously it's, it's mass chaos, but that felt, I think one of the key moments where it clicked for me was when you, uh, you like rappel down into the ship graveyard. uh, And it's like one of the last major fights Uh, that to me kind of felt like a really perfect blend of, of storytelling in that like you're, you're too desperate and you're too rushed for time to really think about it. So go. And it didn't feel like a combat arena to me. It felt like a naturally evolving situation. No, I agree there. And Mike, did you have any issue with how the game actually played? Or do you think uh, it kind of kept up with the, the, the brilliance of the, the character development and the visuals themselves? There were a couple times where the cover system annoyed me. Um, I didn't feel like as if it was precise enough to yeah. be warranting. Uh, uh, like, yeah. You know, these a bunch of these, you know, later on the game, like the part, Joe, you had mentioned the ship graveyard. That's when you start, you know, you wash up on the beach after you almost drown in that ship. And there are three armored machine gunners coming at you. And I would normally dislike that in a game like that. But I think they built up to that well and kind of increased the difficulty at a nice pace. But I also I really like how the gameplay itself feeds into the character of Nathan Drake this time around. I mentioned this in my review that, um, you know, to go back to the patience of The Last of Us, the level design in Uncharted 4 opens up much more than the first three games. You know, you have those areas where you're trying to lower the bridge or you're kind of go, uh, sneaking or eliminating guards in this outpost so you can get to the jeep. Or you could just sprint to the jeep and kind of peel out while, they, while they're shooting at you. It feeds into a much more reserved Nathan because you still kill people in this game, but you have more opportunities to not do so. Yes. And I think yeah. that plays really well into his character arc and how... Naughty Dog's almost kind of critiquing their approach to him in past games, and they're, I think they actually did a really good job of 
correcting that. Um, I think the flashbacks to, uh, I believe it was Boston, when uh, they're going through that mansion and they met um, their mother, Cassandra's like archaeological dig partner, and that was kind of, those scenes really helped paint him as a character that was more reserved this time around, and the fact that you can use stealth to your advantage much more now, as opposed to those stealth set pieces of an Uncharted 2, which I didn't really love. Um, I, I feel like the gameplay is at the service of the story, the story was at the service of the gameplay, and I think they kind of met at a, a, per, a near perfect middle ground. It's it's almost a, uh, a counteracting of the the common joke, which is of course Nathan Drake is a, is a mass serial killer, uh, because you for at least a good portion of those combat arenas, you can more or less opt to sneak your way through. Like it's difficult, obviously, but there are a couple of moments like the, uh, I think it was like the area where they first tease the combat, the kind of like multi-level jungle area. You can sneak by. And I almost did a couple of times. Uh, uh, but I am a serial killer. So I decided not to <laughs> just living out your own fantasy is what really happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I felt like that was kind of, meta contextually playing into that commentary people because it's so weird to think of uncharted as like the one series everybody harps on for being about uh, a guy killing a lot of other guys but we were supposed to love him i i find that so weird because there are so many other series that uh prop up a a lovable affable guy who defeats lots of enemies and uh, i felt like this was probably the smartest way they could inject a little bit of that uh acknowledgement of it in there while keeping it fun to play yeah two things i I think the reason why people point this one out so so much they point on try it out so often is because naughty dog does such a good job of building up these characters making you care about them Mm -hmm. and really making them personable and they're interacting with these other characters and even again their facial expressions you you have this connection to them and they do so well to build who they are and who you think they are so when you see nathan drake murdering people you're like nathan drake wouldn't do that when in reality (laughs) really that's all he does but uh, I I also agree with the stealth that there's a lot of instances where I just avoided people and again when you're stealing that like that four by four with um, Elena at one point you can kind of sneak up and get it and not even you know like you said Mike people are just shooting at you as you're driving away but I wish there was a little bit more sophistication to the stealth mechanics to allow you to do that I wish there was a way to do that average like throw a rock in a direction and distract people so you can go and you know they don't have to look that way and I, I wish. There's a lot of times where I felt like I should have gotten away with something and didn't. Um, so I wish they gave you a little bit more leniency there to be able to stealth. Uh, and, you know, once you get caught, it's kind of like, well, time to fuck that, dudes up. That is kind of hilarious, though, right? Like, Last of Us had that functionality to distract someone with a brick or to even stun them with a brick. But uh, where was that here really in, in Uncharted? It was like I, there were so many moments where it's like, oh, please, God, just turn around. But And you have to wait for the game to fix itself as opposed to you adapting to the yes. game. Yeah, and that's where, um, again, I, I, I think as an actual video game, Uncharted 4 does play better than Uncharted 2, but I don't think it's as it's it's grown up as much as the story and the characters surrounding it where like you said when you look at the end of this game it could have ended at one point but they go the extra mile to do that epilogue and a lot of the the characters the story the visuals feel evolved and matured where uh i feel like there's like half step more it need this need to take and goddamn after a while i got really sick of climbing stuff there was a certain point where i'm like all right another handhold i get it like this one's gonna break and we fall and we go up and yeah there was again a little bit too much of that but uh, let me uh let me ask you guys one quick question. Uh, so the game has that uh, counter of like all your in-game stats, how many people you killed, how many times you died or whatever. Uh, how long did your timer say on the uh, time spent standing still? Mine was easily at least an hour and a half. Really? 
Yep. Is that because you were just staring at stuff? Yep. <laughs> I mean, and, there are there are moments where you get out of a cave or something, you look around, and you're like, God damn. Like, I also like thing. I also deliberately walked through most areas that I could actually to I, I I have this weird thing about like if I can walk through a game and it's, you know, intensely detailed enough, I will absolutely take that chance because I, I love finding detail. There's there's also speaking of kind of uh, how gameplay and story interact. Um, there's one thing that we talked about in the spoiler cast that people kind of forget about, and I myself am uh, guilty of this. The prison break scene with he- uh, Hector Alcazar and Sam, you play that, that never happened. You play, they could have just shown you this cutscene, this flashback of Sam's lie, but instead they have you play through about half an hour of the prison break. I think that was it's super intentional for them to make you actually interact in that scene because... It reminds me of True Detective. I don't know if you guys were familiar with the first yep. season of that, when you start to realize that the narrators are not telling the truth during the scene where they find, um, they're, they're coming up on that hut where they find the children. And, you know, the, uh, Woody Harrelson's character walks up and kills a guy, so they need to cover that up. And you start to realize what you're being shown and what really happened are not lining up. And I think going back to play through, I've, I've played through about half of Uncharted 4 again, and I play the prison break scene again. I'm like, this is, this is crazy. They're, they're making me play through this, and I'm getting even more attached to this scene, so then when I find out it was a lie, it hits me even more. The game itself lied to me, had me play through the scene that never happened, and I think that's that's a special thing. It gets you even more attached to the lie before it's revealed that it was indeed a lie. Yeah, And it tells you a lot about Sam, too. Like, uh, you, you spend the vast, vast majority of this game attaching yourself to him and, like, wanting to learn more about him because he's obviously this kind of self-inserted character that they just had to whip up, uh, but yeah, it turns it all on, on its head. It goes right back to that patience this game has. Uh, because, again, if it was, if this was Uncharted 1 or 2 or even 3, I think they would make that initial prison break just a cutscene or just some sort of explanation. And uh, I agree that you actually playing through it and being involved in it, I, I never suspected that was a lie. There's nothing like, I don't know, do you think Sam's up to this? Like, no, because you had spent that much time with Sam, you had you know seen what you thought was a real prison break, you started to trust him. Um, and I, I think if that was a cutscene, you wouldn't have built up that trust, uh, with, you know, Nate's brother. So, uh, kind of to close out the uncharted portion of this conversation, here, here's a question. So do either of you want any uncharted side stories? Do you want the adventures of Sam and Sully while they're off doing their shit? I don't know who knows what. Do you want, uh, Cassie's adventure? Do you want an old Nathan and Elena adventure? Uh, or maybe even a a new cast of characters with the Uncharted name. Do you think it's time to retire Uncharted as a franchise? Do you think they can do more? And I'll, I'll start with you, Mike. I think they need to retire it. And as much as I think Cassie would be an awesome character, because you know she's trying to live up to this to fill the shoes of this legend that we've all come to know, I think that epilogue did every single thing it needed to. You know, you look at the National Geographic covers and you see you see her doing that. You see her becoming this brilliant archaeologist and. She herself is alone on the cover of some major magazine, and she's, you know, she's this whiz kid, right? This prodigy, very precocious and whatnot. She, I, and then, you know, she finds out that the epilogue begins with you playing Crash Bandicoot again. That's not an accident, obviously. That's, that's Naughty Dog kind of setting the scene for looking to the past a little bit and how, like, people's legacy affects them. And then you see that in the, the way she's grown up and the way that she starts to learn, like Joe had said, about how she's finally old enough to learn that her mom and dad weren't the greatest people their whole life. And I think 
that epilogue itself said everything it ever needs to. I think these four games are all we'll ever need. Like I said, I think Cassie would be a great character. I think she'd be awesome. I think DLC would... I'm sure I wouldn't be surprised if someone tackles her, but uh, in terms of start from the protagonist standpoint, but I would rather they just retire it because I feel like everything that needed to be said has been said. Yeah, uh, just in, in the blog post I had written about it, I I touched on the idea that like, part of my the emotional impact i had especially during that epilogue scene was because all these adventures that we're looking back on and even like the the attic scene uh we we developed this emotional connection to these characters for the obvious reasons but also because we we like all games we lived that experience with them our very first time playing through it and uh i i wrote that like you know i developed almost a sense of pride uh that i had in a way helped Nathan Drake grow and develop through his issues. And now he has a daughter and now he, uh, you know, is living a life that you can take pride in. And I think the best thing, like Mike, Mike said is to retire the series. Um, I, I really don't think a sequel is the appropriate move there because, uh, in the same sense that you, you develop a connection to Nate's adventures and, uh, a pride in helping him along and helping him grow, uh, Naughty Dog in that epilogue scene is a master at leaving us little clues of who uh, Cassie is as a person and who she could be uh, in the future now that she's learning more. Like she's she takes so much from Elena, her her sense of sarcasm and uh, just her sense of longing for adventure. So my my mental image of her future is unique to me. And it's probably unique to you and it's probably unique to anyone who listens to this podcast. They, they have an, an exact idea of what they hope Cassie's future will look like. And that is more powerful. I think that that's a bigger sense of ownership and more powerful than any uh, mass produced sequel. I think you're right. Uh, but let's just, let me paint a picture. It's, it's, it's 2022. We're uh, not at E3 because E3 won't exist then. And it's just some strange PlayStation live stream. And they're showing off uh, the PlayStation Neo Geo, whatever they want to call it at that point. <laughs> uh, and suddenly, this big Uncharted logo comes up. I'm going to get a little bit excited. I'm going to get a little bit excited, even though I agree. I, I don't think we need more Uncharted. I, I, I would love the idea of DLC with this game, story DLC about, uh, again, I, I think I think Sam and Sully, I think that could be really fun. Uh, but I think for now, it's it, I, I'm good with Uncharted. I feel very good about that series. I feel very good closing the book. Uh, and maybe something in the future, but for now, we're good. Um, and... For now, we're going to talk about Uncharted because we're going to talk about Overwatch. And I just got this game just came in like Thursday for me. I played a lot of the beta. And um, honestly, I so I've never really been able to get into class based shooters. Uh, Team Fortress 2, even though I own it and I played it, I just there's something about it that didn't click with me, whether it's the actual classes themselves, the, the speed of the game. I don't know what it is, but something was always off. And Overwatch, on the other hand, is really. It's it's it has me considering team chemistry like I never have before. It has me considering how can I blend these certain abilities and use abilities along with other characters' abilities to maximize my output. Uh, and Mike, again, you reviewed this game. I think you gave it a nine, if I'm not wrong, right? I did. Yeah. Uh, why do you think Blizzard's take on class-based shooters has really seen? It seems much more accessible because you see how many people are playing this game. This 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 game has been the talk of the town as soon as it came out. So what was the the beta count? Like ten million yeah, players? It was insane. And yeah, there's so many people playing this right now, and it seems like that a lot of it carried over from that beta. So what about this? Do you think makes it so much more accessible and makes so many people want to jump in? 
Well, that's the thing. It is accessible in a lot of different ways. Um, I think you can start the game and you can start playing Mercy, a healer, right? Um, we have someone in our office who's not a traditional shooter player, and so he's not going to be playing Hanzo, the, the archer, or Widowmaker, the sniper, or McCree with his uh, six with his revolver. He's going to play Mercy, so he can heal the team, buff their attack, revive them, because you could still understand the game and understand how you could play a role, but without actually, you know, being one of the people that are killing people. You could play Tracer, and she's not designed to be getting a lot of kills. She's designed to be a pest, and she's designed to skirmish and disrupt the enemy team getting to the objective. I hate uh, Tracer they, so much. I hate <laughs> Tracer so much. I can't play her well, and I keep getting killed by Tracer, and oh my, I, I was rage quitting last night from Tracer. It's that, it's, that's the thing, you know, you start to develop these attachments to certain characters and how they play and how you understand the game while you're playing them. And you also start to know how to counter characters, right? Because the more you play, the more you realize, I can counter Tracer with a McCree's flashbang, or I can counter Tracer with, uh, if I'm using Reaper well enough, or I can counter Tracer with Torbjorn's turret. Um, it's, the game itself, your perception of the game changes just based on who you're playing. I mean, these are 21 characters who for all intents and purposes, could have entire games built around them alone. Maybe not the deepest games, but they could. And it's this, it's this class-based shooter where there's 21 really powerful classes, and the more you play it, and the reason I love this game to death is that the more I play it, the more I appreciate it. It gets better with time when you start to see all of this nuance and all of these layers reveal themselves and kind of unfold around themselves as you start to see how certain characters can be countered, how you can help a team more, how this map itself lends itself better to this kind of approach, how you could just do something with an ability you didn't know was possible, how Genji can deflect uh, McCree's Deadeye Ultimate, and I had no idea that could happen until I played the game for 30 hours. It's, <laughs> it keeps revealing new things about itself that it's your time with this game is well spent and it's worth it. It's a very genuine learning process that kind of becomes valuable in itself and i i love how accessible it can be and i love that it's introducing so many people to this kind of game that might not traditionally be into it the number of people playing this game i think is a huge benefit to it because uh i mean right now everyone's there's a lot of people who are brand new to it and they're figuring it out and people are going to learn together how these characters interact with each other how you can use these abilities along with each other to be much more successful but i mean let's say if if a tenth of the number of people were playing this game and everyone started to get really good really quick, I think you would have this kind of that new players beware thing that happens with Call of Duty where you'll enter a game and suddenly you're just sniped. You have no idea where it came from uh, and you don't really know how to get better. You can't grow along with other people, but because there's so many new people getting into this, you can you can go at that pace. You can you can understand how characters work without getting overwhelmed. And of course, you can do that with like bot matches and do some training, but... You never really get better at a game unless you get around other players. So, uh, Joe, do you, uh, have you had any instances where you jump into a game and you feel just completely overwhelmed because there are too many people? There's a team that works as one, or have you kind of had there, a lot of good balance? There are like plenty of examples of of games where we just lost hardcore because uh, uh, we we weren't working or communicating as well as we should have, uh, even if you know we don't necessarily have a mic line open, but. Uh, one of the most fascinating things happened to me while I was playing it, uh, just, just yesterday, I think. Uh, I just, I got into a, a random match and the only other person on the team, Mike line, was this 12 year old kid from Canada. And, uh, he was incredibly smart and incredibly kind and he was willing to work together. And I think that, I, I mean, I obviously don't know this kid, uh, from Adam, but, uh, I think part of that, like we were, we were communicating like crazy. Uh, and this kid was being super productive and 
even aside from the jokes about 12 year old kids on the internet calling us all, you know, horrible slurs, uh, I think the game itself is partially to thank for that because it does encourage some level of cooperation. You, you do better as a team and you feel a sense of pride. Uh, I'm actually working with, um, a young freelancer. I, I help some freelancers, uh, you know, learn how to pitch stories here and there. And, uh, I'm working with, with this girl about a, a piece she wants to do about how this game really encourages positivity in a, uh, in a traditionally negative environment, the first person shooter genre. And what other game like really allows you to give a thumbs up or to give a pat on the back to your other teammates, much less the enemies, uh, who, you know, like I, there, I found plenty of games where I was like, yeah, no, that was an amazing play of the game. And that person played really smartly here, have my vote. Uh, and that's kind of fascinating in this, in this genre alone, much less gaming overall. Uh, even when you lose, it, it's a one more game kind of situation because the overall positivity is soaking through this game. I think that thumbs up system is brilliant. Like, I think that really works out well because, yeah, you do have those moments where you're like, oh my God, you had like a 17 kill streak, even though you're on the other team. As long as they're not like Bastion, uh, yeah. you can usually thumbs up. And like, I, there's, there's just so much of that positivity, which is very foreign to this genre where. Uh, even at the character select screen, you have those little like hints at the right saying like, Hey, you guys have no tanks and you're going to get messed up real quick out there. And I haven't had any moments of people yelling at each other like, Hey, just switch your character. Like people will just do it. They'll just try it. And they don't, it's there. I haven't like you, I've, I've had a couple of cases where I've been on the mic with people and they've just been nice and they've just been encouraging and they've just been like, they're trying to plan things out and it's, it's just been positive overall. Uh, there are definitely times where, again, like I am close to rage quitting because a tracer keeps jumping around. I'm like, I can't, I can't deal with this. This is super frustrating. But I, it didn't make me want. It didn't really make me want to quit. It made me want to get better. It made me want to actually play tracer myself and understand the nuances of that character. And uh, it's, it is cool how, like a fighting game, uh, the best way to start learning how to defensively respond to another character is to play that character and understand their abilities and understand their quirks understand their movement and understand everything like that uh and uh mike have you settled into a specific character again you reviewed this so you've played quite a bit of it but have you found like three main characters you switch between or have you become proficient enough that you can kind of switch between any any class any any specific character in order to deal with a certain situation uh, yeah, so I, I think it's good to have a character in each class, so four mains that you know how to play. Um, you know, support, defense, uh, tank, and offense. But, yes, I do have favorite characters that I'm actually good with, and then I have favorite characters who I am terrible with. I wish I was better with Genji, I think. People who play Genji well are the most impressive players in the game. Um, it, it says something about this game that I just brought up Genji, now I want to talk about him for an entire episode of a podcast, but... <laughs> Um, I do. I like McCree a lot. I've been getting better with him. I think he, I like how he is kind of a skirmisher, right? He's, he does better one-on-one a little bit, but he also can help push an objective. He, his dead eye works well with a lot of different things. Uh, his ultimate, the dead eye that can, if you do it well enough, it can kill six people. I've never done that. I've never seen it. Um, I'm probably, I probably will one day, but, um, my favorite character hands down is Zarya, the Russian, um, tank. Oh, really? She, she is such a, and I'm, I'm, I'm a shooter, like, I got hired at GameSpot because of, well, a big part of why I got hired at GameSpot is because they needed someone that knows shooters because that gap had left editorial. So I like shooter characters in this game. I like Hanzo. I like Widowmaker. I like McCree. Um, but weird blend of different classes. She's a support 
character because she projects these shields onto people, but the shields themselves are more acting as sponges to buff her weapon, which itself can be a short-range laser or a long-range grenade launcher. Her her ultimate, the Graviton Surge, is this black hole that literally creates choke points on the map where there shouldn't be one. It sucks everybody in, and then it works so well with Hanzo. If he shoots his Dragon Strike arrow at them, the dragons will tear through all six of them. Uh, just yesterday, um, I, I was playing on Xbox. I have it on all three platforms just for the purposes of the review. Um, but I have certain friends that are playing on Xbox. Like, all right, I'll jump in with you. And, you know, I got the achievement for getting all six people in one Graviton Surge, and then Junkrat and Pharah just start pummeling them, and then my McCree walked in and finished the rest of them off. Um, you have these different characters that you really get attached to, but I think it says something about the game that uh, I feel like each day I have a new favorite character. Um, Zarya, I think, is still the one I'm going to go to. My In the office at GameSpot at the end of the day, we play that or Rocket League right now, and we were playing Overwatch yesterday, and we were getting torn apart by this one team. So we're all like, all right, let's go with our main. So they're like, Mahardi, you do Zarya. Um, Tay, you're going to be May. Chris, be Symmetra. And, we'll, and we won because we all were playing our main character and we knew each other's strengths and weaknesses and how we could play into that. And we knew the character's strengths and weaknesses. Um, sorry, that was a tangent. No, uh, it's, it's, it's perfect because I think it's it's hard not to go on tangents when you start describing certain characters because right now I am leaning toward the easier characters and please, if, I might be getting these names wrong, but is Farah the one with the rocket launcher and Bastion's yes. the one with that everyone hates? Yep, uh, yeah. Farah's the quake kind of, which this is another point to go into later maybe. Um, she's the quake, unreal tournament kind of character. Um, Bastion, yeah, Bastion, there's a lot to be said about him. Everybody's overpowered, I I disagree, but yeah. It's, I mean, I think early on when people don't know as much of what they're doing, he feels overpowered. I think that's sure. the difference. I think once you, again, once you understand how to counteract Bastion, it, it, he's not that big of a deal. But early on, I remember uh, my first game, I, of course, I played the beta for about five hours, let's say. My first game I played of this, I was exclusively Bastion and went, I think, 35-2. and two Because I camped out on top of like that payload, just became a turret, and just mowed people down because they didn't know what they were doing yet. Uh, so there is that sense of like, well, how do I counteract this? But uh, and uh, there is kind of a concern of people could get so frustrated. They're like, you know, I'm just only going to be Bastion because I don't know how to like counteract him except be him. But uh, once you learn, he's not that much of a handful, even though, again, I I have found myself. I've been trying other characters. I've been trying tanks. I've been trying to see who else I might really connect with, but I keep leaning back on the two I'm comfortable with because I would like to have a good KD. <laughs> so there's that part of me, but uh, I was playing with a friend last night uh, who had just gotten the game around the time I did, and he was just struggling to find a character he liked. I could tell he was getting frustrated because he kept dying, but he finally got to... It's whoever is in that like pink mech who's a tank, and I cannot think of the, her name. Diva. Uh, that's it. Uh, and... He, in this one match, got like a 10 kill streak with her and just kept going and going and going. I was like, oh my god, this is fun. I'm, I'm getting it. And I think you do need that initial character who you can get some kills with, who you can be successful with to really start getting it. So, uh, Joe, have you, have you found your, your kind of rotation of characters? You know, it, it's weird. I, I definitely consulted the little, like, which character have you played most uh, menu during the beta, but I, I've been kind of afraid to look at it so far because I think... Uh, and this is a testament to the game. I think my general character uh, switch up has has shifted pretty significantly. I've been doing oddly enough a lot of uh, Reinhardt shielding because I love to be kind of a he, he's both tank, but he's also such an awesome support that that shield is key during uh, certain corridors. And uh, oddly enough, I must be an edge lord because Reaper is probably my favorite assault guy. Uh, I. 
Reaper has a weird uh, entry point low and a entry point entry point high. Like he he's great for new players, but uh, if you know exactly how to use him and exactly which sight lines you should be looking down, he's uh, absolutely as masterful as any other character. Uh, and that's again, that's that's a testament to the characters. Uh, I. I want to be Tracer, but I'm still learning her, and I've yet to touch uh, Symmetra or Zenyatta, but I uh, I saw Daniel Floyd from Extra Credits, which is absolutely a show anyone listening should uh, follow on YouTube. Uh, Daniel Floyd tweeted out the other day that uh, playing as Mercy, uh, supporting everybody while they get all the kills and the play of the games, uh, must be what being a parent feels like. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yes, that is absolutely like, I don't care if I don't get the play of the game. I'm going to have that 10,000 damage healed, 50% of damage taken, you know, stat at the end, and that's going to be good enough for me. Yeah, and it's it's just it's crazy to talk about this game again, and it's fun to talk about because there's a lot of question of value. There's some people who I've talked to who are like, ah, there's no campaign, it's not worth the, the full price. Which the more I play, the more silly that sounds. Only because I feel like I have played a lot of around four or five characters, and I now understand those five characters. I mean, there's still 16 other ones who I haven't even really touched, and each one, like Mike said, could almost have an entire game devoted to them. There's so much involved with each one, and you can try out all the abilities, get a few kills, and be like, all right, I understand them. But you really don't until you put the time in, until you understand the different strategies, until you go up against a good team who you have to actually really understand the proficiencies of each character, uh, the benefits of each move, to really feel like, okay, now I get this. And it's it's fun how each character just feels so damn different, where there is that Farah feels like a quake kind of, you know, rocket jumping character, and then there's other ones that are much slower, and there are other ones that, like the healing characters, uh, my my brother just got this game, and uh, I had mentioned like his, his girlfriend likes video games, but is not you know really into shooters. But I said like you should see if she likes it because there's a lot of different things you can do, and she is seems to be enjoying it. She's getting into trying like these other healing characters and really uh, finding finding her groove with those people. So it's the, the value question. I, I do think is I mean I understand there's that sense of if it doesn't have a campaign it's missing something it's that that Titanfall thing where it's like yeah but there's no campaign even if in the end some people a lot of people don't even play that campaign but the the depth here I, again I feel like I just scratched the surface uh, I feel like there's so much more I can do and the the world feels like it's it's worth learning more about there's there's a few cliche elements um, uh, Reaper you know looks like a joke but I think. Uh, part of the magic of this game is that if you pay attention to all the marketing material, the, the CG tra- the CG shorts, the comics, uh, that allows you to feel more invested in the world and thus more okay with a lack of a campaign. I, I, I remember, I distinctly remember going back to the original trailer, uh, where Tracer and Winston save the two go- the two boys in the museum and her line at the end, like, oh, the world could always use more heroes. And you just learn more about her history and Overwatch's like really actually kind of incredibly tragic history. Uh, and that line means much more now, I feel. Uh, I, I, there are some characters I haven't really dived into, but I feel like every character is worth kind of learning more about and the world around them. Yeah, no, I agree. And uh, Mike, what do you think this game can do to stay relevant? Because I think one of the most difficult things for any multiplayer experience to do is you have that initial week, maybe the second week where people, that's all they're talking about, but there's always a drop off. There's no matter what, there's always going to be a drop off. What can, like, do we expect a lot more characters, like maybe a few characters a month, or is that way too much of an ask? What can Overwatch do to kind of stay in that public conscious? Yeah, yeah, that would be the obvious um, 
solution, right? Add characters at a steady drip like throughout the year. I think I think a few a month would be way too much. I think the game would suffer for it. But yeah. I think you know one every three months or four months, even that might be tough. But it, I think the game by design kind of lends itself well to you know ideally and kind of I'm an idealist, but don't tell anyone. But I no, I'll cut this I part out. Don't worry about it. <laughs> I think the game itself is designed that people will start to get deeper into it and realize they have not touched this, they have not broken the surface yet, right? Um, it's kind of it's, it's it's an iceberg, right? And everything you're seeing, this this pomp and this spectacle and this these really good looking characters, uh, you're seeing all this and they're colliding in like these sonic bursts of energy. But then the more you play, the more you start to see the nuance beneath the surface. And I think if they want to maintain a multiplayer base, which, like you said, is a very hard thing to do, because you see Titanfall, which is a great game, which fell off. You see Evolve, which is also, in my mind, a great game that fell off. You Even introducing new characters might not be enough. So I'm hoping, I think the best thing for Blizzard would be if uh, Microsoft and Sony figure out the cross-play that they want to do with Rocket League. Um, that's a whole other conversation, but I think more so, just because I love Rocket League, I love Overwatch... I want that to happen even more now because I think that would benefit multiplayer communities on every platform. Yeah, and I, of course, uh, a few characters a month is too much, but I do think there is, if it's, let's say, one every three months, I do think there's a risk of someone saying, like, ah, that's not enough. I need I need more change. And I agree if, I mean, we're sitting here talking about how we're just scratching the surface. I do think there'll be a lot of people who see the character list, try a few, and be like, all right, I need something new now. Like, I, I, I need something. And this game is not, a MOBA, but people to a certain extent might compare it to it in that way. And you look at something like League of Legends where they're, especially early on, they were just constantly adding new champions. And I'm not sure if the community might expect that. I think it's going to be interesting what the expectation for the growth of this game is because, again, it's just that multiplayer experience. It has to stay updated, it has to keep adding and adding and adding, I would think, to keep the giant user base attached uh it, it, it is going to be extremely interesting just to watch moving forward and to see can people actually stay engaged with what's here instead of hoping for more i also i also think they do need to make the weekly brawls uh more interesting and kind of do um because they have like the random hero matches or the everybody has plus 200 percent health i think they need to keep those interesting and keep people coming back you know like as that weekly content because I usually don't care about weekly updates, kind of things like that. Like, I think maps is an easier solution as well. I think they have 12 maps right now. I think they keep adding maps, and that would be the best thing because the maps are the foundation for these characters and the objectives. And it's, the maps are kind of, you know, the objective is kind of a tertiary thing here, which is weird for a class-based shooter, but it is uh, to the characters and the maps. But anyway, yeah, that's I, that's what I'm hoping will happen. I uh, I feel like the loot system itself is kind of dumb because. It, I, yeah, that you could make an argument for, yeah, let's just pay for a skin or something like that. I, I want those skins. That's pretty much the only reason I'm still invested in the, uh, in the loot system itself is because I want, uh, to look different than the standard character. Uh, but, but because there's like 50 sprays for each character, the chances of me earning that, uh, before I hit those, uh, levels where it takes me like a month to move up one, uh, feels like I'm never going to get, uh, some of those, uh, skins that I want. What if they added hats? Let me just throw this out here. There's hats. They're in the loot boxes, and each hat's a dollar. Oh man! I just fixed Overwatch. That <laughs> now it's a ten. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's it. it I, I don't love the loot system, and also I was watching uh, Giant Bomb. They do the Unprofessional Fridays on Friday, 
and uh, Jeff bought, I think, 50 loot boxes. And, like, the first 10 I watched all had really good loot, like, legendary-level loot, and I haven't gotten any of that yet in my free boxes. So I'm a little bit concerned that, although they may look the same, the paid ones might have a better chance of better gear. Uh, so- to counter that, we did the same thing as Giant Bomb. Um, we, Danny O'Dwyer and Chris Waters, both spent the forty dollars for the fifty boxes, and they got, they each got two legendaries in fifty loot in crates. Fifty? Jesus. Yeah. Oh, so, so, okay, maybe it was just a really good roll then, because I, uh, I, there's still a little bit of a weirdness for me always with the uh, forty to sixty dollar game having this sure. many like you know microtransaction stuff, and of course they're not gameplay necessary it's not like buy a box and suddenly your bullets do more it's not that i get it but there is that like a little bit of a cringe factor where yeah i I wish there wasn't as much of that uh yeah it's again it's a fun game to talk about i'm looking forward to playing it more i'm just i want to keep diving in and i want to uh just understand all these characters more i feel compelled to do it like a fighting game again where i want to just learn more about this so i get better uh, even if if you play me online, you'll probably see me being Bastion and just frustratingly killing you. And you, you I might make you rage quit. That's always my goal. Uh, so, uh, any any last words on Overwatch? Anything that we didn't cover that you think is interesting to bring up about this game? I, I do like that it borrows so much from other shooters um, in terms of you know, like Diva's the Titanfall character. You have, like I said, Farah's that Quake Unreal Tournament character. You have Soldier seventy six, who is the Call of Duty character meant as a gateway for people used to those games. Um, I, th- I think it does a really good job of kind of uh, all these things coalescing to make it, it. It's it does a lot of things, but it's just impressive how well it molds all of them. Yeah, and I think I think a, a larger part of that is, of course, like a an, an aim for accessibility. Uh, a lot of us joke about that tutorial where. Uh, Tracer and the narrator, whoever, like, say, to move forward, press forward on the stick. And it's like, what? That this is so banal. But I think that, yeah, for people like myself who aren't uh, heavily invested in uh, competitive multiplayer games, uh, not that I don't know how to move in a 3D space, but that's that's important to develop a base of players who uh, are willing to take a chance. And you reward them for taking that chance uh, every single time they play, but you gave them that platform to stand on by being very understanding of uh, of a lack of experience on some player's part. It's so weird, the origins of this game, what this game was, what it was planned to be, and what it's become, and maybe that's even more amazing of how well it came out. Uh, so, guys, thank you for humoring me, uh, talking to me about these two games that I can't write about, uh, so <laughs> instead I'm just going to sit here and ramble on about them. Um, if you want to find uh, Mike, he's M. Hardy on Twitter, which always looks like your name says MMA. So I think you're like some sort of <laughs> UFC journalist every time I see you on Twitter. Uh, you can find him on there and GameSpot. You can find uh, Joe at Joseph Noop on Twitter uh, all over the place. Mostly Playboy. He'll be on the front cover. And also uh, Presence, the Centerfold. Yeah, the Centerfold, <laughs> the Presence podcast. Uh, and if you uh, like this episode, you should definitely go to iTunes. You should give the 1099 a rating. And uh, thank you so much for all the support. So, uh, again, both of you, thank you so much for spending the last hour talking about video games with me. I don't do these often enough. A lot of these podcasts become advice. Uh, and I enjoy just kind of, especially right now, there's been a lot of good video games. 2016 has been pretty rad uh, with, I mean, Firewatch, Dark Souls 3, and then these two games are all games I've done podcasts about. So hopefully there's more coming out in the near future. Not No Man's Sky, that got delayed. But hopefully, other than that, there's other things we can talk about. So, uh Again, thank you very much, and hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.